0: This is episode 39 of the SSR podcast, in which we discuss Laurie Halse Anderson's groundbreaking 1999 novel, Speak. If you've read this extremely important book, you probably already know why I'd like to give little in the way of introduction and instead let the rest of the episode stand on its own. Speak is a beautifully written book that explores the impossibly troubling issues of sexual assault and trauma through the story of Melinda, a 14-year-old who was raped at a party the summer before she starts high school and is subsequently ostracized by her peers for calling the police and running from the scene before she can explain what happened to Her at the hands of popular upperclassman Andy Evans. But as I said, I'm going to let the rest of this conversation with my guest Morgan Hoyt stand on its own. Morgan is a 20 something reader who lives in New York City and works in the theater industry as the associate to a Broadway producer. Her blog, nycbookgirl.com, and Instagram, nycbookgirl, combine her affinity for reading with her obsession with NYC. When not reading, Morgan can be found spending time with her friends and family, riding a stationary bike at SoulCycle watching a new play or musical, drinking coffee, or exploring the city. Morgan, aka NYC Book Girl, is a true Bookstagram icon, and I am so grateful to her for taking the time to talk with me about this book. Thanks also to all of our Patreon sponsors. If you want to join them, contributing a few dollars monthly to support the podcast in exchange for a slew of awesome rewards, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. I'm always excited to hear what you think about episodes of the show, but I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on this one. Join the SSR conversation on social media by following us on Instagram and Twitter at ssrpod, and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. Please also continue to help me spread the word about the pod by sharing it with your bookworm friends and rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Those reviews in particular are really important when it comes to keeping us on the charts and allowing more listeners to discover SSR. One more quick note on this episode. You may hear a little background noise on this one. Sorry about that. Truthfully, though, I think you'll be too caught up in this conversation with Morgan about Speak to really mind. Now let's go to the show. freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Morgan. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you. I know the world knows you as NYC Book Girl, and I'm honored to actually get to talk to you as Morgan.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Happy to be NYC Book Girl and Morgan those
0: days. <laughs> you chose to read Speak, which I have to say, we've gotten a lot of requests for. Really, since I started the podcast, interestingly, in addition to all of the Instagram and Twitter followers who have suggested it to me, my grandmother suggested months and months ago that we read it. And my longtime listeners know that, unfortunately, my grandmother, who was a huge book lover, passed away in September. But in the months before she passed away, she kept telling me about this book, Speak. And I don't know where she heard about it, but she had read it and she'd been talking to her friends about it. And she'd really been pushing me to do an episode about it. So this feels really sweet to like finally be doing a Speak episode.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be a part of that. <laughs> no pressure, of course. Of course. So, had you read it before then? I had. Did you? That was
0: going to be my next question. What's your oh, history yeah. with this book?
1: I think I read it quite young. I discovered it, I'm pretty sure, through my school's librarian, who was awesome. His name is Mr. Walls. I think he still works at Kent Place, which is the school I went to in New Jersey. And I'm pretty sure he recommended it to me and just described this interesting high school story with kind of a free verse feel to it. And I picked it up, and I think I was a little young to understand fully the themes. I got a lot more out of it this reading, but I remember being so moved by the story and by the way that it was told and the inventive way that she tackles putting this difficult story together. So I was really happy to revisit it, especially with the memoir coming out in March.
0: Yeah, I was young to read it as well. I want to say I was probably in, like, fifth or sixth grade, which... In hindsight and reading it now as an adult feels so young
1: mm-hmm. I think I was 10 and that feels really young for this
0: story and I, I think there's something good about having access to a story like this when you're young because you get a chance to read it and sort of process it yourself maybe at a point that it doesn't feel like it has to be so taboo like you can just kind of absorb it but at the same time I think I was almost too young to even be able to ask questions about what was going on in the story so I think maybe 11 or 12 is for me I think like the sweet spot because I think there's something to reading it really young so it can be your entry point to this kind of a story but maybe being like old enough that you can actually converse with somebody about it would would have been better than my experience.
1: Right. I feel the same way. And I think that when you get closer to 11 and 12, you're closer to Melinda's age. Um, So that story becomes a little bit more accessible and that you know that feeling that's coming of leaving 8th grade and going into high school. Uh, Whereas I think I was in 5th grade and so high school was so foreign of a concept for me that I couldn't even wrap my mind around the setting of it, much less the content.
0: Yeah, and it's hard to figure out what the norms are supposed to be in high school. When you're in 5th grade, as terrible as it is, it might seem to you that these big scary things might actually happen somewhat on the regular to kids who are in high school Um, and the closer you are to it I think maybe it it would read as more upsetting knowing that this doesn't really seem like it's supposed to be right. Right
1: certainly from this perspective many years later it's
0: definitely very upsetting. Definitely very upsetting. I think we are just going to establish a trigger warning right now and Morgan and I chatted about it a bit off mic but for those of you who have read this book before or even those who haven't and are just aware of it you probably already know that Speak dives into some really heavy themes. It is a book about a freshman in high school who experiences a terrible sexual assault um, the summer before she starts high school and about the trauma that she experiences in the months after that incident and there are moments where it's very graphic about the rape itself Um, and then there are also just extremely extremely upsetting moments throughout the entire book where she's working through this trauma that I think people can relate to regardless of the specific experiences that they've gone through, um, can relate to some of those moments. So I just think we need to be honest from the beginning that this is a hard book to read and potentially a hard episode for some to listen to because this is a really awful thing that unfortunately happens to far too many people. And this book luckily has, I think, been a lifeline to a lot of young readers and adults as well. But we certainly can't start this episode without pointing out that, It's a sensitive subject, and we're going to do our very best to talk about it respectfully and sensitively. And obviously, as adults now, we have a much different perspective than we did
1: when we read it the first time. Right. And I might add that there are other themes that might be triggering, like PTSD and self-harm and depression as well.
0: Yeah, there's a lot here. And I just want to be sensitive to listeners. So um, get ready. Again, we're going to do our very best to to dive into all of it um, and to also analyze it as a work of literature, because it's also a beautiful work of literature in addition. Agreed. So... This book was published in 1999. It was written by Lori Hulse Anderson and I think it's important also to give Lori Hulse Anderson some credit. This book was really really well received. I read an article on Book Riot about how her editor told her like not to have any expectations of it and it was never supposed to be the next big thing and so Lori Hulse Anderson was like okay maybe it'll be small but it was really because librarians and teachers and booksellers latched on it that it did so well. So shout out to to all those librarians, booksellers, and educators who championed it from the beginning because it won so many awards and has continued to sell and be extremely important to so many people. It was the 2000 ALA Best Book for Young Adults. It was a 1999 National Book Award finalist. It won the 2000 Prince Honor. So it got a lot a lot of acclaim, um, and well-deserved. There was a 2004 film adaptation that I had never seen before, but now I want to watch, starring Kristen Stewart. There is a graphic novel that came out in 2018. This year is the 20th anniversary of the book, so they're doing a 20th anniversary edition. And as you mentioned, there's a memoir of the author coming out that is called Shout, which I love, as a companion to Speak. So cool. So that's kind of the history of the book. And I guess we just start with first impressions. How did you feel picking up where you left off with Melinda years ago
1: in those first few pages with her? I felt so struck by how young she is. Um, I don't think that that was something that had affected me as much when I read it the first time. But she is so at the very beginning of her experience of life, and it's heartbreaking to think about how young she is when she's going through all this, especially because of how isolated she is in her experience of it. But the setting of high school is so strongly defined um, in the lists of, like, lies they tell you about high school and in the ways that she interacts with her teachers and her lab partners and her peers. Um, And I just, again and again, was reminded of the fact that she's got to be 14 or 15. I don't know if they ever say her age, but she has to be incredibly young to have gone through something so painful.
0: I think she's 14 because I remember reading that she was 13 when the rape took place, which is extremely upsetting. She's 14, entering high school. She is feeling like an outcast almost immediately. And I think one of the things that I appreciated most about the book is that obviously Melinda's story itself is a very traumatic and unique one, but it's told against the backdrop that feels extremely familiar to so many of us. Like the structures of high school, as you mentioned, these lists of rules that they tell you. There's kind of this comic relief running through the whole book where the mascot of the school keeps getting changed. Mm -hmm. the school board seems extremely involved in everything that the school does and they keep changing the mascot because each one that they choose is extremely controversial so that's sort of like i think the typical ups and downs of a high school career that you experience even if you haven't gone through the things that melinda did and aside from that you have the lunchroom drama you have the teachers that are difficult you Mm -hmm. have being uncomfortable with your lab partner and just kind of like seeking a place that's yours and so i really liked that the The book demonstrated that Melinda has gone through this terrible, terrible, unspeakable thing, but at the end of the day, she's also a 14-year-old that has to get up and go to school every day and find friends and go to biology class, which she hates, and deal with teachers like Mr. Neck, who is the worst
1: the absolute worst. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, The inclusion of her report cards at the end of every of the parts also is such a familiar thing. But then, of course, Laurie put those little twists on and it's including things like social life and things you wouldn't necessarily, yeah, receive grades on in a report card. Yeah, and I think that this is just a, a strong example of how when you are a survivor of some assault of this kind you have to return to real life the next day and the next week and the next month and for melinda that's what real life is it's high school which is a painful place to be in and of itself sometimes. Yeah even under the best of circumstances
0: high school is unfortunately really difficult. The format of the book I think is also worth pointing out. It's told in this sort of disjointed diary format and this sort of disjointed non-linear format. I read a bunch of interviews and a bunch of articles with several teachers and professors and researchers and experts in in the world of trauma who were speaking to the fact that this format allowed Laurie, the author, to demonstrate this state of trauma that Melinda's brain was in throughout the course of the book because we don't actually find out what happened to her until about two-thirds of the way through. So the fact that the story is structured in such a way that It feels like it's nonlinear. It feels like things are sort of out of whack. The style is sort of like the best way that the author could show what was actually going on in the main character's mind. Did that occur to you while you were reading it? Because it didn't really occur to me. When I was reading it, I was just like, this is a diary format, which was something that I was very familiar with as a kid. So many of my favorite YA books when I was growing up were told in these unique formats. But taking a step back and reading what these experts have to say— I totally understand that this was almost like a showing, not telling technique Mm -hmm. that the author used because she did not reveal Melinda's experience until very late in the novel.
1: Right. I read an interview with a journalist who compared the tone of this book to being like the blogging tone that we expect nowadays. Yeah. Um, one that I'm very familiar with and Laurie, the author made some sort of joke about how they didn't even have dial up installed until 99 or something in her house. But I think that we take what we feel as that veracity of blogging for granted nowadays where that space where people can be really honest and be themselves so easily and everyone has access to that And this felt to me like that, but locked into somebody's brain. So in 99, if you were going to tell so personal a story, you'd have to do it in a way more public manner. You'd have to go on TV or you'd have to go on the radio or you'd have to write a book or something about it. So we are lucky to have that feel of a space online where you can be yourself and be honest. But I feel like Melinda is trapped into this diary almost where she has no place to share her thoughts or to hear those of someone else that might be like hers. So I thought that was interesting. And then the other thing I love about this feeling like a diary is her use of nicknames, which is definitely something that I know a way that I kept track of people in my life in high school. We had nicknames for like my high school chemistry teacher and everyone in our school, and some of them were terms of endearment, and others were not. (laughs) But I feel like that that use of nicknames reminds you how thoroughly this is her voice, and this is her head that we are immersed in. Um, And we get her perspective of the entire situation and only her perspective and so she's free to call people Mr. Neck or call Rachel or Rochelle however she's feeling about her that day. I loved that element
0: of it. I think the nicknames also kind of allow the reader to disassociate the character from like the specific storyline of the book because I think almost any young reader has the equivalent of a Mr. Neck in their school. Like a mean, middle aged dude who's out to get quite frankly, all the girls that he teaches right. and being able to see him as a character that has just this like silly name gives you a better opportunity to project yourself into Melinda's story. And I think therefore to like figure out how you could speak against that kind of behavior
1: and it almost takes on a fairy tale like quality when you have things like mr neck and like the beast like those archetypes of characters the ones that you could see yourself interacting with or you know who they are in your own life and so it makes it at once within herself and also larger than her because she's the girl fighting against this world that seems like it's out to get her
0: Yeah. Something else that I really loved structurally about the story was the inclusion of other texts. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of references to Maya Angelou, of course, who is particularly powerful to Melinda's journey at the very end, which we'll talk about. But my personal favorite reference was to The Scarlet Letter, which this might be weird (laughs) to listeners, but I actually loved reading The Scarlet Letter in high school. It was probably my favorite required reading that I had to to take in as a high schooler and the fact that Melinda so latched on to Hester and really identified with her which totally makes sense I loved that we picked up on that thread throughout the story
1: I completely agree I did not love The Scarlet Letter in high school I read it every page but it was one of my least favorite books we read but I feel like this book also at once ties into the average high school experience. If you went to high school in America, you probably read The Scarlet Letter at some point in some assigned reading, or you studied it at least if you didn't read the book. Yeah, you were supposed Um, to. Yes, exactly. But I feel like The Scarlet Letter has been brought up more in the last few years in popular culture as an example of the kind of women shaming and victim shaming that we see uh, especially by patriarchal societies. And so I think that Laurie, the author, is almost prescient in her use of it because it, I don't remember in 1999 it being discussed in such a way, but she ties together Melinda and Hester's stories in a way that's so now, so current, seems so right. And that seems obvious today, but I don't think it would have been 20 years ago.
0: I pulled out a quote that says, I wonder if Hester tried to say no. She's kind of quiet. We would get along. I can see us living in the woods. Her wearing that A, me with an S maybe. S for silent, for stupid, for scared. S for silly, for shame. And she thinks that, again, well before we actually know what happened to her. And that's when you start, at at least that's when I really started to think about what had happened and I had read this obviously years ago and I I kind of knew what I was getting into but I think that quote in particular really sort of made me sit up a little bit straighter and realize like exactly what was about to go down and the kind of flashback that we were going to get.
1: I also think that that section where she visits the Scarlet Letter shows how smart the author is at guiding young readers through how to access this text because she makes jokes about symbolism and about how extreme their discussion is of symbolism and how the teacher kind of beats it to a pulp but her symbolism is so strong, obviously it's one of the most beautiful parts of her writing. And I think that that, if you're 11 or 12 or 10 or however young you are when you read this book, that kind of draws your eye to like, oh, symbolism. I remember that word. And then you start to notice it as you go on through the rest of the story. Generally, I think she
0: strikes a really healthy tone in the book, especially Mm -hmm. because we are dealing with these really heavy themes. And I think, Mm -hmm. again, you and I read this book when we were really young. We probably didn't absorb a lot of the heavy stuff. We knew that Melinda was in a really bad spot and that something terrible had happened to her. At least I did. I don't want to speak for you, but that was definitely what I picked up on. I probably had a vague idea of what rape was at that point and knew that it was unacceptable and the worst thing that could happen to anyone but I think that at any age the way that the author has designed the book to have moments of wit as you mentioned with the symbolism sort of the book having a sense of humor about its own symbolism its own techniques I think it just strikes really healthy balance where you can read these really heavy, heavy themes, but there's a little bit of a sense of humor, um, some wit sprinkled throughout the book, which balances out the dark stuff really nicely, especially for those younger readers.
1: Right. I think that we can talk about this later as well, but she's intelligently useful of being blatant in times where it's necessary, in times where she says things like it was not, as Melinda, she's saying it was not my fault. I said No. I am not the the reason this happened, nor do I deserve this, and I think that that use of clear language is really important. I was thinking about this in the chronology of when I read it and what my like, sex education would have been like, and I think this must have been the first time that I visited those themes of a woman's role in a sexual assault, or lack thereof. I think that when she is clear, it's purposeful as to why she's being so opaque with her language as to what is right and what is wrong. And then other times it's up to your interpretation of what's important in that moment of the story or what she's doing with her tree pictures or things like that. So I think that the author just guides a reader, especially a young reader, very smartly through what the lessons are that you absolutely must take away from this book and then what you're for you to interpret. There was a
0: story on Bustle, I think, in 2017 that I read, and maybe you came across it in your research as well. But it features interviews both with Lori Hulse Anderson and the now editor of Speak. And one of the things that struck me most, um, well, there were two things really that the editor said that really struck me. The first being that Speak is so not about the physicality of rape, which really fascinated me because then I thought back and I actually looked physically back At my book and I realized that the flashback scene in which Melinda actually experiences her assault really is only about a page, a page and a half, which I think serves two purposes. One, it allows, I think, maybe a younger readership to take this book in without parents, even more parents, banning this book because unfortunately this book has come under a lot of censorship. But I think the fact that it's not, it's not an extended descriptive rape scene where you watch physically what happened to her. I think that creates a bigger readership for this book. Maybe more parents are inclined to let their kids read it. But I also think that, as you said, it allows you to interpret a little bit more about what the broader experience for Melinda is like. It's not just about that one terrible, terrible, terrible moment. It's about everything that came before, everything that came after. So I think that's a really interesting point. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is that we meet Melinda a few weeks, a few months after this has happened. And so we meet her as... A fully formed human who yes has experienced this terrible thing but also has as you mentioned earlier had to go on with her life and so in that way she immediately isn't reading as a victim like she's a girl who has had to pick up the pieces and march forward we're not meeting her at the very very low point in the middle of her assault we're meeting her at a very low point as she's continuing to navigate all of this but i think laurie house anderson does a really great job of showing that this isn't something that has had to define her yeah
1: i completely agree with that I think that what you said about the physicality of the rape scene, the rape description, is so interesting because so much of the experience of this book is very physical. But none of it has to do with that exact memory. It's all about the way her throat scratches when she hasn't used her voice for hours or days, or the way her lips scab when she chews on them so much that they crust over or are causing her pain, or the way that she like slightly mutilates her body with paper clips and other incredibly painful images that. Laurie Hill Anderson brings to mind, but she chooses not to use any of that in the great description scene. And I think it it does exactly what you were saying. It serves to make it so that you can read this book at 10 and take something away from it and not have it just be a traumatic memory.
0: Yeah, I think if you read this at 10, about the age that you and I would have read it, and there was an extended flashback to the assault, that probably would be the only memory that you had of this book. Whereas my memory of this book is actually one where Melinda is very resilient and fights exactly. through a lot. So I think that's a very important distinction. right? And Laurie Halse Anderson actually calls this resilience lit. Um, She's created this category. Don't you love that? Yeah. So fun because a lot of other scholars, literature experts, call this trauma literature or problem literature. And so I love that. Lori Halse Anderson I keep meaning to call her Melinda it's so interesting I keep I wonder what right. that's about I keep switching like Lori Melinda as as the words are coming out of my mouth I love that Lori has created this whole other category that is defined much more by the strength of her character than by the trauma of her character
1: right I was overwhelmed by how this is a story of survival survival of high school, of being an outcast and how hard that is in and of itself, and also survival of this horrific assault that she's experienced and is now living through. And I kept writing survival in so many different parts of my book. And I think it comes back in the images of the trees and how they have the sick tree in their yard that her father hires someone to come and care for and how she looks at a picture or she draws a picture of a tree where she sees that a branch is hanging low and she's like, oh, that tree must have a sick branch. Hopefully someone comes and fixes it before it takes the rest of the tree down. And I think that those images of things that are not okay now but will be okay later just are perfect encapsulations of what her experience is. Because we get to go through from that low point at the beginning, not the lowest point, but a very low point through to when we're maybe not so low at the end with her.
0: And then it really comes full circle because she asks I can't remember if it was her mom or her dad, but she asks one of her parents to bring home seeds. So now it's not just about tending to the sick tree that's already in their yard, but it's about planting anew and, like, really starting fresh. So her progression was from, like, helping her dad to take care of the yard, trying to make things a little bit healthier. She chips away at that for a while, and then she asks for new seeds and wants to, like, really create her own garden and bring things fresh
1: and the fact that she then chooses working on her garden and tending to it over helping her toxic friend try to solve yet another social climbing problem of decorating for the prom a prom she's not going to get to go to or participate in or reap any of the benefits from and that's like her moment for me that was her moment of reclaiming herself and her time and her self-worth as a friend even if she doesn't have any friends to enjoy said self-worth and she chose gardening and growing new things over that.
0: I think that's a lesson that we can learn from or at least that I can learn from even as an adult because it's so easy to always accept every invitation Mm -hmm. and agree to help everybody else all the time but learning to take care of yourself first to respectfully deny invitations that don't serve you and that sort of thing we talk a lot about that now in this whole self-care movement and Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that Melinda did that. This book was ahead of its time in so many ways. We cannot separate Melinda's experience from sort of the social structures of high school. So I think we need to talk about that. And in order to do that, I kind of want to take a few steps back and talk about the party itself because that sort of establishes some of the dynamics that we read about later on. We find out again about two-thirds of the way through the book that all of this started a few weeks before school started again, just before Melinda's freshman year. Her best friend at the time, Rachel, had gotten them an invite to this cool high school party they definitely were too young to be there. I can't remember, maybe Rachel had an older sibling who had gotten them in or drove them or something. And that's the first hint that Rachel is kind of a social climber. Like, she definitely wants to be cool. She wants to be running with whichever crowd is the most popular. And Melinda tags along. She and Rachel were best friends throughout middle school. And she gets there. And you can tell she's definitely like the shyer of the two. And she hangs back and gets a beer because that's what you do when you go to a party. I was not somebody that ever drank in high school so for me like I couldn't even imagine being an eighth grader at a high school party. The thought of going to that kind of a party as a senior in high school would have completely freaked me out.
1: I completely feel you on that. I had so the opposite of that experience where whenever I did drink in high school, it was with 10 friends in someone's basement and someone's parents were probably home, whichever cool parents it was. So it was always very safe and very comfortable. And I watched the trailer for the Kristen Stewart movie, which I didn't know existed, but I've heard she's incredible in it, 13-year-old Kristen Stewart, but there's the scene of the party, there are a lot of scenes in the party cut into the trailer, which I thought was interesting because of how little we know about the party at the beginning of reading speak, but clearly that's something, an image they were using to draw audiences in. But there's a moment where she is standing there so small, so young, tiny, and he, the after playing Andy puts his hand on her waist just to move her out of the way. And that was such a physical moment for me of watching this tall man, an almost 18 year old man, if he's going to be a senior in high school, touch this small girl, even in the act of just moving her aside before any of it becomes threatening it already felt so ominous just to see that one visual interpretation of that moment.
0: Even now as a grown woman, when I'm somewhere and a man does that, especially when you're out mm-hmm. at a bar or a restaurant, you live in New York, you know how it is. If, if you're out somewhere and a man puts his hand on you and like physically moves you, it makes me sick to my stomach. And right. I, I was an extremely shy kid. So I probably never would have found myself in this kind of a situation but knowing how I feel about being touched that way as a, as an adult I can't imagine how uncomfortable it would be
1: for a child. She's 13 years old. Because it feels like an assertion of dominance even when it's just someone pushing you on the Sunday platform or walking by you to get to the bathroom in a crowded bar or something like that where you're reminded of their physical presence in the world and their physical strength that may or may not be able to be held over you at some point. It
0: didn't read quite as ominous to me in the book. I don't know if you mm-hmm. experienced that but I think part of it is that we are reading it through Melinda's eyes and she is new to the school. She's nervous about being able to make friends. Obviously she's hoping to have some social capital. She has this friend who wants to be popular. She's had a few beers because she's nervous and and that's quite frankly what you do when you're nervous at a party and the beer is there. It's probably really cheap beer and goes down really easily. And this boy, a soon to be senior, comes and finds her and talks to her and is quite frankly really charming. So even though I kind of knew what was about to happen while I was reading the book, Andy, as a character, didn't read as ominous to me in the book, whereas, as you said in the trailer for the movie, you really feel that fear more.
1: Right. I agree. I feel that it's in the moments after the assault that were given in the book that he becomes that ominous it or beast or monster in her world. But I think that it goes to prove the point of if at any point in an encounter you say no, it's rape. It's assault. You can say no at any moment. You can say no at the, when you meet them. You can say no when you are in bed naked with them. And it is the same binary scale of that is assault. And um, So I think that in Melinda's eyes, he is charming in those moments. And she is interested in him. But it becomes something so much more than that something so much darker than that. She's not wrong for having looked his way in the first
0: place. No, it felt good. To get that kind of attention. And he's kissing her, and at first things seem to be okay, and she's not upset by it. And then it turns ugly and scary really fast. Um, He starts to get a little bit more intense with the way that he's touching her. She says no, she says no again. And I think everybody listening can guess what happens next. He forces himself on her as she's continuing to say no, he covers her mouth with his hand and rapes her and she's left in the woods, I believe. They're in this wooded area. Um, And as you said, at that point, he becomes this beast and becomes extremely dismissive of her, kind of like laughs about it a little bit. He's conquered this very young girl. He goes on later, I think, to call her Fresh Meat, and that's definitely how he seems to regard her in that moment. And she's left alone and scared and doesn't know what to do. And her choice, which I can't imagine there being a better choice at this point, was to call 911. You grow up thinking and being told that anytime something goes wrong, you call 911. I remember that being like the first lesson that you learn as a kid. And so that's what she thought to do. She couldn't She couldn't verbalize what had happened. Who knows? Maybe she had never even been taught about rape or assault. Like we don't know what her background was. She just knew that something very wrong had happened and she called
1: the police. And I think that that's a power move on her part. Yeah. I know it comes from a moment of probably not being able to see straight or think straight. And I think that the first number I was ever taught to dial on the phone was 911. Mm-hmm. That and my mom's cell phone number. I feel like those must have been the things that I first memorized, but it's clearly so ingrained into her that even in this moment of fight or flight, her hand probably dialed before she even knew what she was doing. And it's upsetting that she isn't able to follow through on that moment um, and stay for when the police arrive and that instead she runs and walks all the way home, which we're led to believe is quite far from where this party is being thrown in the woods somewhere if her friend's brother had to drive them. But it's it's such like a moment of hope almost that she's going to call the police and get the redemption for this horrible crime that's been perpetrated against her.
0: And the voice on the other end of the phone prompts her to tell what happened and basically says like, we're sending officers now, we'll be right there. Can you tell me what happened? And as you said, she kind of like locks up and can't express what happened. She runs away. But because the police show up, the party is broken up. I think the implication is that people were arrested and really were in trouble because obviously there was underage drinking and a lot of other things going on. There were a lot of other things going on that the police didn't even know about clearly because Andy Evans should have been arrested but the reason that Melinda is then starting this school year as an outcast as she describes it is because everybody sees her as the girl who's broken up this huge party and I think we're led to believe that like almost everybody who was anybody at the school was there. So, so many people were affected because this had been such a huge party and that's really made her an outsider and this was so different to my high school experience because I went to a huge high school and I think that because of just our sheer numbers there wasn't really this sense of cliques or this sense of people really knowing each other's business like I can't really imagine an environment as a high schooler where other people would have known what I did on a weekend um even if it was at a big party like my student body was so big that not everybody could have gone to the same party. So um, I always think it's interesting reading about high school dynamics like this because it's so different from my own where there's just so much more awareness and I think it creates more of an environment where there can be outcasts, where there can be outsiders and that's where Melinda finds herself on the first day of freshman year which as we said earlier is tough even under the best of circumstances.
1: Right. It's so different from my high school experience as well but in the complete opposite way. I went to an all girls school for 14 years wow. and were 62 of us in my graduating class. Oh my gosh, Um, I graduated with 800 people. Our graduation ceremonies must have been very different lengths. I think there were 15 of us who had been together that entire time. And then an additional 45 who had come in and out over the course of the years. So everyone knew everyone's business without a doubt. You knew everything about everyone and you knew what they'd done in like eighth grade when you were a senior, things like that. Because I think it's hard to move past things in your past in high school when people are there to track what happened the whole time. But we were very sheltered. It took I think through a few years of high school for us to become independent and to think about going to parties like this where there would have been upperclassmen four years older than you things like that we were very isolated within our grades and our, our within our grades and our friend groups that existed within those grades so cliques were a big part of the experience but it was a 13 year old me wouldn't even have known to picture a party like this that existed outside of the tv screen.
0: Yeah, it so. feels very teen movie, and the way that they show it in the trailer for the movie Looks reflects so teen. That. Well
1: And I, I also think it's interesting because the way they show it in the trailer for the movie is inside, um, which I think amplifies that feeling of being cramped and being trapped in a crowd but not being able to say anything. But it seems to kind of disregard that important imagery of the woods and the trees that she's surrounded by when she's outside for the act itself that the book
0: chooses. Yeah, to focus on. So after she started school, there are two key classmates and her relationships with them that I think illustrate the journey that she's going through. And I think if we can talk about those two, we'll capture a lot of the other themes and a lot of the other experiences that Melinda goes through throughout the course of the year. Because this book does encapsulate a full school year. It's told um, in terms of the four marking periods, which was a fun throwback. I haven't thought about a marking period in a long time. So there's Rachel who we mentioned before who has been Melinda's friend for what seems like ever but at the beginning of the school year she is not speaking to Rachel or rather Rachel is not speaking to her because everybody seems to know that Melinda is the one responsible for the party being broken up that was one thing that I couldn't quite figure out and maybe I missed this detail but I I couldn't quite figure out how people knew that it was her because she ran from the scene did people see her on the phone did I miss that
1: I feel like they must have seen her on yeah. the phone she couldn't have had the M- anonymity of being able to like place a call from her cell phone or something, so she must have had to track down a landline at which point there were probably people who saw her do it. Yeah,
0: all takes is one
1: person, I guess. Yes, exactly. I think that I, I got the sense that this is one of those schools where rumors spread like wildfire. And so that that feeling of walking into the pep rally or the basketball game and everyone is looking at you and everyone knows what you did after one person saw such a thing and then all of a sudden everyone in the school seems to know.
0: So she's not speaking to Rachel at the outset. Rachel has found herself in this group of international students, of foreign exchange students, I think, which cracked me up. We didn't have even a single foreign exchange student in my school, so I loved that there were all of these international students. It must have made for a very cool student body and a much more culturally awakened, awoken student body, this was just not my experience. And so Rachel's hanging out with these girls. She's referring to herself as Rochelle. She's smoking candy cigarettes. And again, it's details like this that offer like a little bit of comic relief because Rochelle is sort of a caricature of Rachel.
1: I, yeah, I actually thought it was interesting when we were talking about nicknames, the people that... Melinda chooses to refer to by a name other than their own and the people that she never uses nicknames for, I feel like draws a very clear line in the sand of where they stand in her life. So Rachel and all the flashbacks is Rachel, but Rachel in most of freshman year is Rachel slash Rochelle. Um, Whereas there are a few people in her life, like her art teacher, her algebra teacher, her mom, her dad, Heather and Ivy, who never get that kind of nickname treatment. And then at the end, Rachel becomes Rachel again instead of Rachel slash Rochelle, which I think shows the journey that their friendship goes on throughout this tumultuous freshman year
0: yeah so she and Rachel aren't speaking at first and Heather becomes kind of her primary friend at school Heather is the new kid and doesn't really know where to go to find a pal and she latches on to Melinda in the lunchroom because they're both sitting alone and obviously this was a necessary device for the story but it did sort of crack me up that like they would have been friends even for a day. Like, they clearly had nothing in common. I don't think they even would have had anything in common before Melinda went through this trauma. Like, they're just extremely different people, but they become besties. Heather's really annoying. She's weight-obsessed. She's extremely self-involved. She immediately figures out, like, all the dynamics of all of the different cliques at the school and wants to make sure that she's in the best possible one. So while she and Melinda hang out for a little while, she drops Melinda like a bad habit pretty quickly, unfortunately. And it's really upsetting. I hated this whole scene. I pulled out a few of the quotes that Heather said during this like breakup that she orchestrated. She says, I mean, we kind of paired up at the beginning of the year when I was new and didn't know anyone, and that was really, really sweet of you, but I think it's time for us both to admit that we are just very different. And like, she's right, but this is awful. She also says, we were never really friends. I mean, it's not like I ever slept over at your house or anything. We like to do different things. I have my modeling, and I like to shop. Ridiculous. Um, And then she says, you don't like anything you are the most depressed person I've ever met, and excuse me for saying this, but you are no fun to be around, and I think you need professional help. Again, probably true. Melinda really should have been seeing somebody, but Heather's delivery and the way that she has led Melinda to believe that they are friends, and then suddenly just drops her when it's no longer convenient, is disgusting. And, And it's really because Heather's gotten in with this group called the Marthas, and they inform her, I guess, that Melinda has this reputation. And so because of that, Heather has to divorce herself of Melinda's friendship.
1: It seems like the textbook definition for how not to talk to somebody who you think needs mental health Uh assistance of some kind. Yeah. She's like, you just seem like a bummer. And
0: I think you should probably just figure it out, but I don't have time to deal with it. And it's awful. Right.
1: It's so horrific. That scene just made my blood boil. It's all the things that Melinda has thought or felt about their friendship that entire year, but to hear it said out loud, Melinda would never dare of saying such a thing to Heather, despite the fact that Heather's maybe the worst friend. I like to think that
0: in the last few years, as the conversations around mental health have heightened and become a little bit more mainstream throughout our culture, that kids in schools are learning better techniques for how to talk to their friends and how to like spot red flags and how to communicate about things like this. So hopefully there are fewer and fewer Heathers out there, but I'm sure that before there was this broader conversation around mental health going on, I'm sure that there were so many kids who were going through different mental health struggles who were spoken to in this way by friends or classmates, and it really is horrible to think about. So then Melinda's kind of in this dead zone. She realizes, I think at that point, that she actually wanted Heather as a friend. To that point, she hadn't really liked her very much. But when you're alone, you kind of wish that you had any friend. She has ivy who is a member of her former friend group who she happens to share art class with and she and ivy developed this increasingly more comfortable rapport over the course of the book although i wouldn't call it one of the two like core relationships ivy's kind of this like sneaky empowering friend who at the end is the one who shows melinda that all of these people have commented on the notes that Melinda has written in the bathroom stall about how Andy Evans is a terrible human and has hurt people. Ivy is the one who pulls her into the bathroom and shows her that there are like 10 to 15 other notes that other girls have written directly under Melinda's note. So Ivy's the one to be like, you're not alone. Like look at you, you're bringing people together.
1: That's powerful. And Ivy's, yeah, Ivy's the first one I think who dares to insult Andy in front of Melinda, at which point she realizes that maybe the rest of the school that seems to work him doesn't actually feel in that way and i feel like that's kind of one of the first moments of the unlocking of belinda's brain and jaw and personality um one of those moments that starts to free her and then accumulates in this moment where she gets to read the notes of other women on the bathroom stall
0: Because Rachel kind of comes back around later in the book because she started dating Andy. And Ivy, as you said, is the one to sort of be like, I don't know what she's doing. This is so stupid. Like, why would she do this? He's not that great. And Melinda decides that she wants to warn Rachel because clearly she's had this extremely, extremely, dangerous encounter with Andy and she doesn't want Rachel to experience the same thing so she writes her a note she even mentions that Rachel should tell her other friend I think she calls her like Greta Ingrid or Ingrid Greta because she can't remember which of the two names belongs to this foreign exchange student and then she thinks that she's about to make up with Rachel like they're sitting in the library it seems like they might be about to make amends Melinda starts writing notes and sliding them over to Rachel and being like, here's the real deal. I actually got raped at that party. And at first, Rachel is like extremely upset and is like, oh my gosh, like I wish you'd told me. If I'd known, this whole thing would have been different. I would have been talking to you all year. I'm so sorry. What can I do? And then probably my least favorite part of the book happens. I hated it. She finally tells Rachel that it was Andy Rachel's now boyfriend who raped her and who was the one behind all of the trauma that Melinda has gone through the whole year. And Rachel forgets every sympathetic empathetic nice compassionate bone in her body she says I can't believe you you're jealous you're a twisted little freak and you're jealous that I'm popular and I'm going to the prom and so you lie to me like this and you sent me that note didn't you you are so sick and she storms out of the library and that was I think for me other than obviously the rape flashback that was the worst part of the book
1: I agree and you can tell how little Rachel has thought about the words that she's saying to Melinda because they are, as you said, passing notes back and forth and then all of a sudden she stands up and screams this at Melinda. So she doesn't take the time to think about it as she's writing it but instead it just kind of spews out it's her gut reaction. Though clearly she ends up reconsidering what it is that she's written because she's at prom with Andy and we find out later that she has brought up what Melinda told her to him on the dance floor at prom and after he's physically annoyed her to the point of bringing it up but I thought that that moment is just so heartbreaking especially because Rachel shows like a glimmer of hope of believing Melinda at first I liked that her first instinct was to say I'm so sorry that's so awful I wish you'd told me I hate that her second instinct was to accuse Melinda of being jealous, but there's a part of her that wants to care about what's happened to her friend.
0: Yeah, I just hated this whole scene. It it made me so upset, especially because when I think about Melinda again as a 14-year-old and then picturing that trailer that we both previewed before we talked of Kristen Stewart, so tiny, so young. You can just see her having a moment of being like, my friend, she's coming back. Like, she's gonna understand. We're gonna work this out together. Because remember, listeners, at this point, Melinda hasn't talked to her parents. Nobody even knows what's happened to her. So in this moment that they're sharing in the library, Melinda's like, maybe Rachel could help me. Like, maybe with her help, we can talk to my parents. We can figure out what we're supposed to do here. And again, she's this very young girl. And then her hopes are just like totally shot to hell because... Rachel does, unfortunately, a thing that happens all too often and is basically like, I don't know why you'd make something like that
1: up. My boyfriend is great. It's so brave of her to finally, in that moment be honest with Rachel and Rachel so betrays that trust to the point where that language is maybe so harmful that Melinda would never have spoken about it ever again if it weren't for the strength that seeing what those other girls had written on the bathroom stall ends up giving her
0: yeah that bathroom stall really inspires her empowers her because later on in the book after the prom scene that you mentioned Andy and Rachel break up Andy figures out that Melinda was the one to tell Rachel about what happened at the party and he traps her in this closet that Melinda had kind of adopted as her like sanctuary over the course of the year and the especially heartbreaking part about this moment is that Melinda has actually gone to this sanctuary to dismantle it because she doesn't think she needs it anymore she's collected all these items there comfort items and she's gone there to like take it apart because she's feeling stronger she doesn't need to go there anymore and as she's in there taking down her Maya Angelou posters and all of her other art she turns around and Andy's there and he says you have a big mouth you know that Rachel blew me off at the prom giving me some bullshit story about how I raped you you know that's a lie I never raped anybody I don't have to you wanted it just as bad as I did oh it's hard for me even to read this um but your feelings got hurt so you started spreading lies and now every girl in school is talking about me like I am some kind of pervert you've been spreading that bullshit story for weeks what's wrong ugly you jealous can't get a date you're not going anywhere you really screwed things up for me um oh I don't even like having to repeat that Um, He pins her against the door and this very beautiful moment, Maya Angelou is the one who she locks eyes with because she has this Maya Angelou poster that she luckily has not had time yet to take down and she feels like she might be ready to scream. She opens her mouth. He says, you're not going to scream. You didn't scream before. You liked it. You're jealous that I took out your friend and not you. I think I know what you want. He continues to press himself against her, and that is the moment where she screams and she finally speaks. People hear her, and the lacrosse team shows up, and Andy is taken down, and everybody knows what Melinda has gone through. And it's amazing, and it's so
1: powerful. It's so powerful. She talks about being able to scream loud enough to bring down the walls of the school, which I think for a woman who has, or a girl who's felt so powerless for this entirety of this story, to feel that inside of her body she has that kind of power where she could dismantle this entire building that's been causing her so much grief the entire year, even if it's not the truth, um, is such a beautiful image. And that physically she ends up getting control over him when at the point at which the lacrosse team shows up, she has the upper hand and she is there for herself, both with her voice and with her body. And then she's got a whole, a whole gang of people to help A whole army of girls, which you got to love, too. I love it so much. An army of girls who wouldn't have been there for her earlier in the book or been there for her if they had known who it was, but they hear a girl scream and they show up.
0: Yeah, and so in the end, her friendship or her former friendship with Rachel gives her, in a very sick way, an opportunity to regain her voice because it's because of this conversation that Rachel and Andy had that Melinda gets a second chance to scream at him and tell him no and make him understand that you cannot push somebody's boundaries like that. You cannot touch somebody when they say no. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot violate somebody in that way. Um, And so that relationship with Rachel takes a very interesting turn but does sort of circle back to empower her in a
1: very interesting way yeah I agree her relationship with Rachel is the full circle of the emotional journey that Melinda goes on because it shows her isolation at the very beginning of the book and then her moment of overcoming her fear of speaking about this thing to try and write down what happened and get Rachel's attention and then finally in the end she doesn't really need Rachel she needs herself and she's there for herself and who knows where their friendship will go after the book ends. I know readers begged Laurie Hall Sanderson for a sequel for that reason to find out what happened to Andy and find out whether she ever became friends again with Rachel. But I feel almost it doesn't matter because it's about the person that Melinda has grown into by the end of this book.
0: Yeah, it's definitely about her personal journey, although I... I can't help but wonder what would happen with her. Oh, I'm so curious. What do you think? What would you like to happen?
1: I think that in my perfect world, they come to some kind of cordial way to be around each other, a way to say hello to each other in the hallway and talk about the things they used to talk about. But I don't feel like Rachel deserves Melinda as a friend, at least not at this point. So I, I wish for Melinda to find the right people for her, the people who like basketball or art or tennis or whatever it is she ends up really loving in the next three years of high school and beyond that i like to think that ivy is her people yeah i think so too but i also think that ivy doesn't necessarily need people so maybe melinda needs some other people also people who do need people
0: they'll be like maybe quiet art room friends and hanging yes. out in the art classroom right. um because exactly. that's kind of where they found bound. Yeah, yeah she's like a cat, yeah totally yeah <laughs> I say that I'm like a cat, so maybe Ivy and I could be art room friends too, so whew, um again, there's so much that we couldn't have covered in this hour. I'm glad that we dove into what we dove into. I think we had some really important conversations about what this book really means, and hopefully about what it communicates to young readers and to adult readers overall coming back to this book as an adult, did it make you love it all the more or did it ruin it in some way for you? How do you feel about it in hindsight?
1: I definitely felt like I loved it even more now than I did then. I think that at the time I was young and I was struck by how beautifully it was written and how different it felt from other things that I'd read up until that point. And I think I liked Melinda, but I don't remember that much more from it. But now I think it's such an important story to put into the subconscious of young readers, even if they are just kind of internalizing it and not old enough to remember things, it is an important thing to live in people's bloodstreams. It feels like Laurie Hell Sanderson is able to see into the future a little bit. It feels like a bit of a premonition, a sad one, and that we're still talking about these themes. So commonly in pop culture, I know that it really blazed a trail in terms of young adult literature, and these were things that people weren't necessarily talking about in books, in YA books at the time, and clearly things people are still uncomfortable talking about is this book is banned in many different Classrooms and school districts, unfortunately so. Um, So I think that it's just as powerful now as it was then, which is upsetting to me. I wish that as a society we'd moved further forward from needing to repeat again and again that this kind of behavior is not okay and that it's a crime. But I'm so glad that this exists.
0: I feel the same. I think, as you said, I was struck as a kid by how interesting it was as a book, how different it was from other books that I had read. I think I loved reading high school stories in general at this age, and I was fascinated with what it would be like to be older. Unfortunately, this is a terrible illustration of what can happen when you're older, Um, but I think that I probably internalized a lot more of like the high school drama and maybe The depression she was experiencing and maybe having some empathy for that as a young kid but not really being able to understand what the stakes were reading it now it's so colored by my personal experiences by the experiences of so many of the women that I know of so many people in my life so many conversations that I've had with girlfriends like late into the night over wine and snacks and just like pouring our hearts out to each other and sharing some of the terrible things that we've Gone through and that we've heard about. I think that has so informed the way that I read the story and the way that I feel like I can look to the future and hope that as young readers are reading this book now, hopefully they will understand it better than I did. I think in some ways it really sucks that we live in a world where little kids are aware of things like rape and assault and the Me Too movement and all of those things. Like it's unfortunate. That that's had to happen, but maybe it means that when nine and ten year olds read this book now, they'll actually understand what is at stake and it will mean more to them in a way that I was probably too sheltered to experience back in the nineties. So all that to say, it made me love it all the more. I know how much this book has meant to so many survivors. I know personally survivors who were so touched by this book, who really saw this book as a lifeline at different points in their life. So quite frankly it was like an honor to read it in this way. And I hope I hope we did it some justice. It's a sensitive thing to talk about, but I do know that it's an extremely meaningful book and I hope that it lives on and continues to educate and also like give people a sense that they're not
1: alone. Over the past 20 years, it's had so many lives with the winning of all the awards and the fact that it keeps getting republished in new anniversary forms um, and with the movie being made five years after its publication. I think that it's gotten to have an incredible life for a book that her editor warned her was not going to be successful publisher warned her it was not going to be successful and I'm excited to see where it gets to go next
0: it would be interesting to see another movie about it because I do think that the original 2004 movie was kind of quiet like I wasn't aware of it I think somebody told me it was was it a showtime movie or something I'll have to look into it more for the show notes but it would be interesting to see if they made another film version to see what they would do with it years later?
1: Something I read online said that the movie itself got another life when Kristen Stewart was cast in Twilight because people were going back to try to learn who she was. And so a whole crop of watchers or viewers found it later on in life. Oh, I had one more thing that I wanted to say about it. that doesn't fit really into anywhere that we covered, but in the course of using real high school moments um, I think her project on the suffragists is so interesting yes. and I'm a total suffrage history nerd but Laurie Hill-Sanderson doesn't reference this, but the Alice Paul and the New Women's Party in 1917 silently protested at the White House. They were called the Silent Sentinels, and they stood outside carrying banners each day that said what it was that they were protesting, but they stood there silently practicing their form of civil disobedience, and then that ended up to—they were there, I think, for six weeks before they started getting arrested, and then there were prison stays and hunger strikes and a whole other series of things, but I think that the youth of silence in both that movement and in this book. is so powerful that I love that parallel, even if it wasn't purposeful.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. I loved that moment. Melinda writes this report. It's an extra credit report for Mr. Neck, who is terrible. He tells her last minute and definitely arbitrarily that in order to get credit for the project, which she's worked so hard on, she has to present it orally, which she doesn't want to do because she still hasn't spoken. Like, she hasn't broken her silence yet. She doesn't want to give the report. And so she decides instead to print enough copies to distribute to the class. And then she writes this whole, like statement on the chalkboard about how like just as the suffragettes protested exercise their rights to gain the right to vote she wants to exercise her right to be silent and that that's like part of what she's entitled to do just as the women in the report that she wrote and then she gets in trouble for that she doesn't get credit and I loved that too obviously and well not obviously in the end her friend David Petrakas is like you can't have it both ways you can't protest for the right to be silent and then also expect to be heard which I thought was interesting but I appreciated both of the statements that were in there like like I appreciated the moment where she was like, I want to be allowed to be silent if I don't feel like speaking. And then I also like that David was like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like if you want to be heard, you can't just exercise the right to silence. You also have to exercise your right to speak. So I thought each argument stood on its own really well. And I'm glad you brought it up.
1: I love that moment. And I love that she chooses to go about it in her own crafty way as opposed to enlisting someone like David to read it aloud. I love But it's it's her moment of empowerment and creativity. And I wish that it had accounted for more than a D. I love David, but
0: we didn't need him to be involved any more than he argued with us. Right.
1: So I'm interested if there ever were to be a sequel as to what their relationship ends up being. Yeah, that would be interesting.
0: I think I think there could be a little something going on there. He seems very respectful and smart, mm-hmm. and I think that's really what Melinda needs, is somebody who's going to respect yeah. her and listen to her, because that's she just needs to be heard. I agree. Stepping away from Speak, although I could talk about it with you all night, I'm curious, outside of this book, what are you reading now, or what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? And as NYC yeah. Book Girl, I'm sure you have plenty of recommendations recommendations.
1: Well, it was so funny. I just read one of my most anticipated releases of 2019 trust exercise by Susan Choi. It comes out in, I want to say March, but it might be April. Um, and it's also set in the high school. And it is what I finished most recently before this. And so I love high school stories too. I loved when you said that because I, I think that as a kid I was drawn to that. And even now I'm drawn to that and trust exercise also plays with toxic masculinity and men in power exercising themselves both mentally and physically over women and, and boys like and young students. So I would definitely recommend it, especially it deals with a performing arts high school. So if you're a theater nerd like I am, it is a great book and has some great twists in it. And it's written really creatively, not in the same way that Speak is, but that same amount of creativity goes into her prose. So I definitely recommend that. I feel like now I just need to read some more high school stories. So I'd be to just be a month of high school stories and nothing else.
0: Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Well, I'll include a link to Trust Exercises, which now I really want to read in the show notes, yes. along with a link to Speak. I would highly recommend this for anybody listening, especially for women who haven't read it in years. I guarantee you it will be a much different experience. I think a much more powerful experience reading it now. I will also include a link to Morgan's blog, NYC Book Girl. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do. Make sure you're following her on Instagram. She's one of my favorite follows. I love your Insta stories. They're great. They make me wish that I was still like going out late in New York and like doing cool New York things. (laughs) (laughs) Because in addition to reading great books, you also do some really cool things here in the city. So check that out. Morgan, I'm really grateful that you decided to join us as a guest. Thank you so much for this thoughtful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking about this with you. Bye. Bye.